Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. Morning. So if you take notes, yeah, your format for notes this morning is 13131. 13131. I'll explain as we go. My name's Stephen. If you don't know me, glad you're here. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series entitled Redeemed. This comes right after our series titled Redemption. It's not that we lack creativity. It's that we planned. Uh, this really is kind of part two of the series, but we thought we'd you know, switch it up a little bit. Uh, the redeemed being uh, what happens after redemption. And so we spent eight weeks working our way through the Old Testament leading up to the cross. Last week, I taught on this passage, in him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so last week, of course, was Easter, and we taught you know, what happened on the cross. Christ paid our redemption payment for us. And then uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which shows us that redemption without resurrection is powerless. And so redemption was the payment for our sin. Resurrection was the power to then step out of that sin. And when we uh, experience redemption and we walk in the resurrection power of Christ, we then have relationship with him, and we begin to resemble Jesus and we reign with him in his victory. And so what this series is about is talking about what it looks like to resemble Jesus and to reign with him in his, uh, in his resurrection victory. And so we're going to look at that in kind of four circles or four areas. Uh, today, we're going to start a little internal. So us, what does it look like for us to live the redeemed life? And then we're going to look at uh, what it looks like to be kind of redeeming out in the world uh, at large. Then we're going to actually bring it back in and talk about uh, redeeming in our marriage marriages and redeeming uh, in our families or our parenting, relationship with kids, okay? So that's kind of what the next four weeks look like, and we're going to journey through Ephesians as we do that. And this is, the series is kind of a picture of how most of the letters of the, uh, the New Testament are written. You establish doctrine and theology, and then you talk about practical steps and action. And so that's where we're in. We're in kind of the practical side of it now. This morning, we're going to look at a famous text. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now, as a famous text, um, it's really only been famous for like 50 or 60 years, which is interesting. Uh, if you look at people to write about this text over the last 50 to 60 years, you see a lot. If you look at some of the older commentators, um, you know, 200, 300 years ago or so, um, there's less written about it. And uh, that's, uh, I think, significant. It kind of shows us something. As we look at this passage, uh, Ephesians 2.10, it says this, For we are his workmanship. Another translation says masterpiece. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Kind of a famous text. Maybe you've seen it at Hobby Lobby or something, right? Like it's, it's around a lot. And, uh, and this verse has picked up some traction. And when you ask people about this verse, like uh, what word stands out? Well, I mean, the word masterpiece in the NLT, the New Living Translation, it says masterpiece. Or in the ESV, it says workmanship. Now, there's a, a pretty easy idea when we think of the word masterpiece, all right? We think of the Mona Lisa or we think of a famous piece of architecture or we we think of, uh, you know, maybe a car, uh, right, or, or a piece of music or poetry. We think that is a masterpiece. 
And what do we think of it? Well, oh, masterpiece. Oh my gosh, great value. I mean, incredible value, right? We all watched kind of in a horror, right? As Notre Dame um, began to burn. And we thought, oh, it's an architectural masterpiece. It's one of a kind. It's, it's unique. I mean, it's even hard to place a value on it. And this is what we think about this term, masterpiece. And that's, of course, what the term masterpiece has begun to mean. Or not begun, it's kind of always meant that. And so we, we have ideas. Then we look at the text and we say, okay, so for we, we, well, who's we? Well, I'm we. I'm, so what? I'm a masterpiece. <laughs> I'm a workmanship. I'm a, I'm a masterpiece. There's inestimable value in me. There, uh, uh, I'm unique. I'm one of a kind. And we begin to build the implication of this word masterpiece, apply it to ourselves, and look at this verse and use it as a, a, a verse that then creates great, we could use the term value or identity or self-esteem or self-worth or whatever it might be. And we think, I am masterpiece. Maybe get even a little you know, tattoo that says Ephesians 2.10 to remind yourself that you are a masterpiece, a workmanship, one of a kind, unique and this is, um, I mean, the, the, how why this verse has become very famous. And so I want to help us understand it. I also want to just briefly say, um, everything I just said is horrible doctrine and very bad theology and poor exegesis of scripture and very damaging, very damaging, crippling, actually. And the way this text is often understood or taught is is. Um, not just bad theology. Again, it is, it, it, it's crippling to the hearer. Because what happens if the Mona Lisa gets cut in half? What happens if Notre Dame burns? What happens if the sculpture gets busted? The value is gone. What happens if you make a mistake? What happens if you don't live up to what you're supposed to? What happens if you don't compare to the person next to you? What happens if somebody is more or better or this when you're that? Well, then the value is gone. Got to understand this text differently. I have here a Detroit Tigers hat. Okay? Now, I'm not really a Tigers fan, and I don't really watch, I maybe watch one baseball game a year, okay? But the hat uh, has a story behind it. And so, um, this is a Detroit Tigers hat. Uh, I don't know how much you would pay for this. Probably not more than 10 bucks. I mean, it, it is the Tigers, right? And so, um, you know, maybe when it was new, it was 20 bucks, okay? Uh, if you go to Lids and you get like the nicest fitted hat, maybe you'd pay $40. Okay, for whatever type of hat it was for your favorite team. If you were in the stadium uh, for any sports team and they just won a game, maybe you'd pay, maybe you'd pay 50 bucks for the hat. But if the strap on the back broke, you'd be severely disappointed. You'd probably throw it away. If you spilled coffee on it and it didn't look fresh anymore, you might be very, and the value would depreciate. When the value is in the what, when the what changes, it loses its value. When we read this text like we are the masterpiece, 
When we read the text as in as as masterpiece, as the center focus of the text, then one, we make ourselves the center focus of the text, which is always a problem. But secondly, it means if 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 the value is in the what, then when the what changes, it either increases or decreases in value. We have to look at the text. We'll come back to the hat. We have to look at the text and see a more important word. Masterpiece, it's a unique word, sure. We'll get into that in a second, but it's not the most important word. Let me tell you what the most important word is. For we are his workmanship. For we are his masterpiece. The word his here is the word that matters. The word his, um, the ownership that it's showing, even the word itself, it it, it, depicts like a strong ownership, like a jealous ownership. If you're taking notes, I told you one, three, one, three, one. Here's your first one. Value comes from whose, not what. Value comes from whose, not what. Let me prove it to you outside of scripture. So my stepsister went to a One Direction concert a couple of years ago. Okay, and um, One Direction was very famous at this time. Okay, and um, a hat was thrown into the crowd by one of the band members, Tiger's hat. Okay, and the hat was grabbed by my stepsister. And uh, at that point in time, you could sell toast if you could prove it was One Direction's toast on the internet for thousands of dollars. If she could prove that the hat was actually worn by whichever one it was, okay, um, then all of a sudden the value added zero or multiple zeros to it. Not $20, but $200 or $2,000 or $20,000. The value changed because of who's not what. The hat doesn't change at all. But now because it belonged to One Direction, it has value. If you're smart, you're already seeing through this. This is four years later. No one even knows who One Direction is anymore, right? So already, that who's has lost value. Now, we could go another way and we could say, uh, you know, if I had a pen up here and I'd say, how much would you pay for this pen? And I explained the pen. You said, oh, it's an antique pen. Oh, man, it's an antique. I'll pay 150 bucks for it. But what if I told you, ah, that's the pen that Benjamin Franklin signed the Declaration of Independence with? First off, Nicolas Cage would show up. Second, <laughs> how much would that pen be worth then? $150,000? $1.5 million? Why? Because the pen changed? No. Not what? Whose? Value comes from whose, not what? For we are his. Who's his? Christ. Unchanging unwavering. The value then for us, our value in Christ means it's always the same because it's not in what? It's in whose? Done with the hat. Let me give you some implications now for this idea. Three of them. Three implications for value being found in whose, not what. Once you're his, you're always his, which means your value stays the same. Consequently, it means the following. Your greatest value is not your success, your morality, or your achievements. 
means you don't depreciate in value because of performance, all right? You're on a new car coming off the lot. You're not Facebook stock after a hearing. Stays the same. The three implications, and let me give them to you. First one is this. It changes how we view ourselves. When value all of a sudden is because of whose I am, not what I am, it changes how I view myself. It means my fears, my faults, my failures, my insecurities don't define me. Your defining moment came when Christ breathed new life in you. That was the defining moment. Your value, your worth was settled right then and there. Unchanging now. Second implication, it changes where we place our identity and, our, and therefore our deepest worth. You are not defined by your income, your job, your looks, your success, your achievements, or anything that you've done better than what somebody else has done. These are all unstable. They're always shifting. They're unreliable and they're unforgiving. Something as important as where you place your deepest identity has to be on something stronger than what it is that we can achieve or how we can look or what we have. When value is who's not what, then we place our greatest identity and worth on who you belong to, Christ. It changes how we view ourselves, changes where we place our deepest worth and identity. Thirdly, it changes our motivations. It changes our motivations for how we live. Why? Because now you and I don't have to be motivated by gaining more value, accomplishing more, or winning. We can now be motivated uh, not just by what we achieved, but we're motivated by what Christ already achieved for us. Truth, I don't have to wake up every day and say, I want to win more than the person next to me. I don't have to wake up every day and say, if I get to this, or if I get to that, or if I can only get here, or only do this, or only do that, then, then I'll be okay. Then I'll feel like a winner. Then I'll feel strong. Then I'll feel confident. Then I'll fill in the blank. Oh, I can change my motivation. My motivation now is not in what I'm able to achieve. It's my motivation is what was achieved and given to me. What does this mean, by the way? It means that failure doesn't have to cripple you. It means that if you do face failure, you don't have to walk around uh, uh, wounded. Not that you don't feel pain. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you don't have to walk around um, uh, saying, oh, I, I failed and so I'm done. It's not like a hat losing, you're not like a hat losing its strap. It also means that um, your, your lowest moment doesn't define you. Your value is in whose, not what. But there is a what, so let's talk about the what. So that was one, three, here's the next one. What are we? Well, we're a masterpiece, but we're Christ's masterpiece, our workmanship. So let's understand this term, because it is important to understand it. And actually, when we understand it, um, it might even change the way we think about the word a little bit. This word is used twice in Scripture, two times. And the fact that it's only used two times, um, I think, shows us uh, we have to really examine the other time that it was used to understand what the author might mean this time. So Paul, who's the only person who uses this word, uses it here in Ephesians 2 and also uses it in Romans 1. When he uses it in Romans 1, he is very clearly talking about 
physical creation. So what I'll refer to as creation. He's talking about the, the earth and sky, right? Everything in it. God's workmanship. Only two times he uses it. And there he's obviously showing a parallel. He's showing how God created a workmanship, creation. And God created a workmanship, you. So he's setting up a parallel. Now, the fact that we are God's workmanship or his masterpiece, there's um, three implications. And where we're going to grab these implications is by seeing where Paul used this word before. The first implication is this. Let me ask it in a question. What did earth and sky do to be a workmanship? What did the tree do to be the tree? What did the sky do to be the sky? What did the sea do to be the sea? Nothing. Tree didn't earn right to be tree. Sea didn't earn right to be sea. They were created. You didn't earn right to be masterpiece. You were created. Being called masterpiece is a gift of God endowed, bestowed upon you. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is in there. It was given to you. You were created masterpiece. Let me give a small segue in that. It is imperative to Christian understanding that we read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 in proper order. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Oftentimes, what Christians do is they take verse 10 and they put it before verse 8 and 9. And if you do it that, then it says, mentally, if you were to do that, it would say, I'm becoming a workmanship through my good works, and then I will receive salvation. Oh, and how many Christians live this way? Good works come first, then the salvation. No, no, no. Good works are a response to salvation, not a pathway to salvation. Salvation is given, then the good works. Ephesians 2.10 comes after 8.9. This is so important to understand. Okay, so the first implication here, second group of three, um, we're created, not creator. Second implication, what was in Romans chapter one, when Paul talks about creation, he, he tells us what the workmanship's purpose is. And what that workmanship's purpose is, is the same as our purpose. And what was workmanship's purpose in Romans chapter one? To reveal God's nature. To reveal God's nature. So as a workmanship, then what's my meaning? What's my purpose? Why do I exist? To reveal God's nature. So in Romans chapter one, it was saying, how can you not walk outside and look at earth and sky and not think there was a God? It reveals his nature. Think about the implication of this text. It, what it's saying then is, is, how can you know my children? How can you know my church? How can you know, fill in the blank of your name and not know that God exists? It means that when you walk into the room as a workmanship, you or to reveal God's nature. So when people say, I wonder what God's like, I'll tell you, God is loving like this person. He's kind, generous, patient, caring. We're workmanship. It means we're to reveal God's nature. We're supposed to give people, not that we're God, obviously. We're supposed to give people a picture of what God's like. And if you have somebody in your life who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, and they've shown you grace, it helps you understand God's grace better. 
And if you've seen someone in your life who has shown you patience, it helps you understand God's patience. And if you've seen somebody who's been ridiculously generous to you, then you see God's generosity. So what are we? We're we're a masterpiece. We're a workmanship. We're one of the implications. We're created. We're not creator in that regard. And we have a purpose to reveal God's nature, to show people who he is. Third implication, just of what we know of creation. Creation, um, when God spoke it into it, creation was created out of God's divine power, wisdom, and love. The, the first workmanship was created out of his divine wisdom and power and his love. And so then, what does that mean about you and I? It means that we're formed out of God's divine wisdom, power, and love. So why are you here? Why do you exist? Why did God create you? He created you out of his power and his wisdom and his love. That's the third implication there. So value comes from who's, not what. There's implications that changes the way you view yourself, changes your motivations, changes your identity. What are you? You're a masterpiece. Created, not creator. Created to reveal. Created out of divine power, wisdom, and love. To do what? To do what? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Let's not forget all this happens because of Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Or the, uh, the Greek word ergon. Right, which sounds like Aragon from Lord of the Rings, which probably actually is a connection. Uh, Aragon, good works. Now, uh, as a Christian, when I hear the term good works, I think of two things. First off, I think of Ephesians 2.8, right? The idea of earning good works to receive salvation. We've already dispelled that. Uh, when you hear the term good works, it's something else that should probably trigger as a Christian is going back to the garden where God worked and called it good. Good works. He, he worked. He called it good. So for we are his, our value comes from whose we are, not what we are. We are his masterpiece, his workmanship. He, he's created, he's formed us to reveal his nature for his purposes and his meaning. To do what? To do good works, to do ergon. In other words, to go about recreating the garden. Those are the good works that now you're created, you've been redeemed to go and now be, in an essence, creator. Okay, not ultimate creator, but God then is saying, okay, I've, I've created you, I've made you new to reveal who I am, but now to go and release you to be a redeemer or to bring redemption or to create redeeming moments. Now, these are not just like, oh, okay, so that means I have to become a pastor or serve in church or something like that. No, 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 this is so much bigger and better than that. Like, parent, the work of raising godly children who understand and live out the gospel. Husbands and wives, when we serve each other in our marriages and care for each other. Employee, the work of being honest and giving your best effort. Employer, the work of uh, uh, treating your employees well and giving fair pay and creating good work environments. Students, the work of creating an environment at school where there's um, love and kindness and not gossip. Single person, uh, the work of building friendships and caring for one another and offering of time and talent and, and resources. 
retired person, work of praying for uh, and, and serving and helping those who are in busier seasons. Like this is the good works that he's created for you. And it comes out of the motivation of what Christ has done for you. He says, yeah, I've created you for these good works, which God prepared beforehand. In other words, he has a divine plan of how all of this can play out as you walk in them, or the term is um, peripateo, peripateo. And, and what this phrase, this Greek phrase, peripateo means, I love this particular definition, to make due use of one's opportunities, to make due use of one's opportunities. In other words, to see every moment in life as a redeeming moment. Every one of them. See, the picture, and later Paul is going to explain how all of us then join together into a church to become a body of Christ doing this all collectively together. But right now he's just talking about the individual side of it, uh, saying this is how you operate, but then later we're going to all form together into the church. He's going to get there in chapter four. But what he's saying to you then is uh, um, uh, God has out of his grace redeemed you and saved you. He's rescued you from sin. He's paid the payment. He's resurrected from the grave. He's um, initiated relationship with you. He's then uh, given you unbelievable value so that you no longer have to live under the crushing expectations of the world or comparison or whatever you uh, fantasy you create in your own mind about what will make you happy or give you value. He's freed you completely from that. Why? To go bring redeeming moments to the world around you and to make due use of the opportunities that you're given. So mother, loving that difficult child is a redeeming moment. Father, being patient instead of yelling is a redeeming moment. Serving your neighbor is a redeeming moment. Being nice to the waiter or the waitress is a redeeming moment. Teacher, loving those kids is a redeeming moment. Worker, serving your customer is a redeeming moment. It's looking at life and seeing every opportunity to slip in redemption and to bring a redeeming moment into it by operating out of the values existed in the garden, that Christ now has created you, planted those in you, so you would go out and bring redemption. And here in just one, one verse, right? This one verse, what, what Paul is doing is he's giving us a framework for how to live our lives. Now, here's the warning. The warning what I started with at the beginning. Don't twist this verse into some kind of like self-esteem pat on the back. Don't um, fall into the trap that says what gives it value is what I am. Because then you're just in the same trap. It's just like a religious one. Because I'm telling you, if you do that, the moment you fall, the moment you make a mistake, the moment you see somebody who's better, you'll feel the weight again of feeling limited in value. But if we deeply understand this passage, then no matter what the world throws at me, no matter what the world throws at you, 
My value comes from who's not what. That is a stable ground to stand on. And it frees you to be an incredible redeemer and to bring redemption to all those around you. So one, three, one, three, one. What's the last one? Walk out redemption. Bring redeeming moments to everyone around you. That's what you were made a masterpiece for. Let's pray. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.